So you want to watch a movie, but you don't know which. Choosing the one can be a bitch. But Jared and Drew have perfected the art. So sit back, relax, and trust the dark. It's dark for movie night. What's going on, everyone? I'm Drew. And I'm Jared. And welcome to Dartboard Movie Night, the podcast where we put 20 movies on a board, throw a dart at it, and let the fates decide. This week, the space race is on as we cover a movie that Siskel and Ebert both agreed was one of the top three films of the 80s. We're talking The Right Stuff, written and directed by Philip Kaufman and starring Ed Harris, Scott Glenn, Fred Ward, Dennis Quaid, and Sam Shepard. That was a mouthful. That is a lot, dude. And you handled it. A lot of grace. And it said a plum? A plum? A plum. A plum. Like the no, fruit? A plum. A plum. Okay. Well, anyway. You got to do the that's hand how you gesture. I'm, I'm kind of elongating yeah. my hands. Yeah, dude. Has anyone said a plum and not done something with their hand? Just, it's impossible. I defy anyone out there to say it and not at least have some sort of elevation of the hand yeah. or a tip a tip of the hand. It's, it's, it's like, a, it's like um, what's, what do they call it when, uh, you know, like the, the ballerina or like gymnastics, like, you know, the, the flourish of the hand. Mm-hmm. Like you got yeah, to yeah. do something with it. Yeah, it's not quite a jazz hand, but it's it's something. It's, it's, your it's hand like a has finishing move on, on yeah. the word. <laughs> and I think subtly, it's like subconsciously, you're saying like, I know this is a fancy dancy word. I'm sorry, but I have like, yeah, my hand. No, you're right. There's, there's a little bit of shame built into that hand. Yeah, motion. there's a little bit of a dismissal thing. <laughs> anyway, great reading is what I meant to say, dude. Thank great you, job. Thank you, sir. Well, we're heading to space. How to space, do you dude. feel about space movies in general, sir? Oh, great question to get us started, dude. Um, I guess I would say overall I like them. And, and I'm thinking of like other ones that come to mind, like Apollo 13, which I really haven't seen since I was a kid. I'd, I'd really like to that revisit movie holds it. Up. Does it really? Yeah. Also, Ed Harris is in that as well, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't he in Houston? Okay, cool. Um, we'll get to it, but I had seen The Right Stuff before when I was young, like pretty young. So... That's that's another obviously solid space movie. Um, Gravity, somewhat recently, a movie that came out in our adulthood at the very least. Um, you know, probably got a little little bit of an overhype going on, but still a really solid movie. I still like it quite a bit, and I think it holds up. I haven't seen it since theaters actually, so maybe holds up is not the right way to put it. But I, it was a good theater I, experience. We saw that together actually. Yeah. I mean, I, um, oh, that's right. We did. Yeah. yeah I forgot Spokane, about that. Spokane, Washington. Yeah. And you're totally right. Unreal theater experience. And what, again, one of those, like, it took you guys this long to realize that really embracing silence and space is, could be a dramatic improvement. Like it seems so obvious and other movies obviously have played with silence, but that one was, I feel like the one that really took it to the next level. And it's like, that seems like such a no brainer, but for some reason it took forever to get there. You want to know the one that does it the best though, in my opinion, which this movie has just grown and grown in my brain over the, the years. First man, that movie is a fucking masterpiece. I've never seen it. You haven't seen first man. No, no, no. Well, I mean, I was thinking about it recently cause I just recently saw Babylon, the Damien Chazelle film and, and, uh, uh, First Man is is one of his films as well, but it's a movie about kind of like it's it, it, it's confronting the cost of of the space race. It's 
simultaneously like a psychological portrait of like what who is the type of person who does it it's it's a great companion piece to to the right stuff in that way mm. and but it's kind of about this just like lonely isolated kind of just person who can't connect with humanity and like you know the i you know wanting to be so far from it that he puts himself on the fucking moon like that mm. it, it's a great <laughs> great movie i'm gonna get a, as far away from people as humanly possible in some ways yeah it's like it's daniel a, day lewis is, is like from there will be blood is like up on the moon kind <laughs> of except a, like a lot less sociopathic more just like i like i cannot process human emotion it's, now, it's really fascinating based on the title it sounds like it's about you know first moon landing is it that is. true yeah it's okay. neil armstrong's the main character nice nice yeah I'd, I'd love to see it man and and overall i would say i dig space movies this probably goes without saying but particularly when they're well done and um i don't know it's a really because you and i have grown up with the moon landing always being a part of our life like you know it happened before us and everything so it's just been a known truth i can sometimes get a little numbed to how amazing that is and it's, and, it, you know, the right stuff in a bunch of movies kind of help illuminate for me. It's like, oh, that, that's it's fucking crazy. It's crazy that human beings did this. And it's it's uh, it's always cool to see a movie explore the different angles of that uh, amazing thing. And I do particularly like when a movie explores like the guts it takes for an individual to do that, which I think this one really does. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think I like that so many of the movies are about that you know within this genre um but at the same time because they've been done in these different decades i feel like you're getting different lenses on the same idea so like you know what in in terms of like the right stuff versus first man i think the reason they make such good companion pieces is they're asking a lot of the same questions but they have very different conclusions and and it's just I, I don't know I just I I like that and I and yeah I'm, I've been a big space movie person for my whole life so yeah I'm glad we uh, finally got to this one, dude. Me too. Me too. Just to rock out a quick streaming check tonight's movie 1983's The Right Stuff. There is a recent remake by the way, so just keep an eye out for that. Yeah, which I didn't oh, it was even a TV realize. series. I think yeah. it was. Yeah, yeah. Which I I didn't realize till after I saw this again for the show and I was like, wait, what? That that really went unspoken. And I looked at the cast. There's some why? recognizable faces in it. Yeah, why? <laughs> why? This is definitely something that didn't need to be remade. This, this was one of the bigger head scratchers in terms of yeah. a remake that I've ever had. Yeah. What would be what what would be your biggest head scratcher? Quick aside oh, before the streaming chat. Again, another famous Jared Just question that puts me on heels. the spot. I don't Dude, I, for, I don't know. Let me For think. me it's the Godfather. If someone was like, Hey, we're remaking the Godfather, I'd be like, What the hell are you doing? Oh, oh, you're saying a hypothetical one. I was Yeah, total to, yeah, oh. no, total like what like just I a mean, movie. Citizen Kane is the obvious answer. Just yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, what yeah. what I mean. What I, mean, I guess adding? in some ways there will be blood is in, in a lot of ways like a very similar movie, but it's not a remake mm -hmm. by any means. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, there's plenty of this. If, if we're talking about ones that exist that I'm like, why does this exist? <laughs> Literally every single remake of a Disney cartoon that has been done in yeah. recent years is like, it is baffling to me. Yeah. Watching the, the Beauty and the Beast live action movie was one of the most like 
heartbreaking and devastating experiences of my life because I'd watched it and I was just like, what a colossal waste of time, effort, money. Like, like it, it, it was the, it, it's like the epitome of everything wrong with Hollywood right now. Yeah. And do you feel that same way about, say, like the Jungle Book and the Lion King? Like the I haven't of- seen the Jungle Book. The Lion King it, it has no reason to exist. Um, that movie, I mean, we talked about it very briefly last week, but um, yeah, that movie should not exist. The Aladdin one is probably the best of the bunch, but that's like degrees of garbage. Like, like we're talking like it's still just utter trash. Well, you know, it, we, our generation is currently hardcore under, steep, under siege by the nostalgia warriors. They're mm. coming for our wallets and they're, they're trying to get us and they it's think so that a lot cynical, of us man. it's so cynical and it's so it's i'm just getting sick of it it's making me turn on my own childhood and i'm getting cynical about my own upbringing because they're so aggressively trying to monetize it yeah it's like a bummer but but yeah they they think we all have kids and they're like oh you know it'll get them in the theaters they'll try to introduce their kids to the jungle book or the lion king not that the jungle book is our childhood that was obviously long before but you know what i mean they're well, I they're just they're yeah. so overplaying their hand about i don't want to sound like i'm anti remake in general like I, I, if we're talking about another disney example that actually does work like the remake of pete's dragon is a legitimately great little kids movie that they made a few years ago um, that that's like a movie where it's like they're taking a lesser known property, updating it and, and, you know, finding a new spin on it. And it's like that that interests me. If you're going to do something with the material, that's cool. But if you're just doing it to cash in on, on nostalgia, like go fuck yourself. Yeah, dude, there are some great remakes. And we have even said like we'd be down for some remakes on the show in the past. When we, we when we were talking about the, that movie, The Big Sleep. It's like, oh, man, I would like to see a modern day version of this right. where the, the, the homosexual themes and things like that could be more openly the eroticism, played out. Yeah. Yeah. It could be, and, and not that we I mean, we both really dug that movie and of nothing, course. not a frame should be changed of it. But I would be interested in seeing like a modern re- revisit of that. I mean, we were talking some time ago about how Scarface is is somewhat of a sort of reboot reimagining of the original black and white film Scarface. So there's ways to do it. You just got to bring something new to the table and look at it in a, in a different light. But most most of the time, it's it's so stupid in my opinion. But anyway. Back to the streaming check. Streaming check, streaming check. So the right stuff. I was surprised to see this. It's not available free with subscription anywhere at, at time of recording. We have pay to rent, usual suspects, Prime, Apple TV, Vudu, and Redbox. I didn't even really know they had a streaming service. But... Surprised that it has to be rented. You could also buy the Blu-ray for like ten bucks. Uh, so either based on the course of this discussion, or if you have your own interaction with the film, you could go that way. Yeah. But um, I mean, it is a it is an iconic movie, and when we talk about it, like there are a ton of shots that I think were invented in this movie that are referenced in a lot of other movies to follow. So. We'll, we'll obviously get into that stuff, but definitely an obtainable movie. You just got to pony up a couple of bucks to check it out. 
for sure, for sure. Let's do a quick board review to orient ourselves with the board. At number one, we've got You Can Count On Me. Number two, Akira. Number three, today's episode, The Right Stuff. Number four, Rio Bravo. Number five, Operation Condor. Number six, Anomalisa. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, Pi. Number nine, Days of Heaven. Number 10, The Limey. Number 11, The Hateful Eight. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Number 14, The Karate Kid. Number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, Dirty Harry. Number 17, Tatan. Number 18, Snatch. Number 19, Strange Days. And number 20, The Terminator. And if memory serves... Drew, it'll be your week to nominate a replacement, right? So at the end of this episode, Drew will be nominating a film to replace the right stuff on the board. And then we'll be chucking that dart and seeing what we get for next week. But but yeah, excited to talk about the right stuff with you, man. Can't remember if we were mentioned this, actually, but this is a Drew Clark choice. And let's go with the traditional question, Drew. How did this get on the board and what was your experience Having never seen it before, what did you know about this film before we got to it this week? I had to kind of comb back through my memory to, to remember where this kind of got lodged in. But it's a movie that I've been aware of since I was a little kid. And I, I distinctly remember browsing the, the aisles of Blockbuster back in the day. And for some reason, the cover of this box, you know, the VHS box or DVD, whenever it was really stood out to me. Um, I think it's just a striking image of the, the white background with these guys in like old-fashioned space suits. Um, and it just, it, it always was something that I, I remember seeing and, and being like, oh, I feel like I'd probably like that movie, but it's really fucking long. I don't know if I want to dive into yeah. it. Um, it's also a movie that my dad really loved and he would bring up quite often. And for some reason, it's one that we never got around to watching together. But I just, I, I just, I remember multiple times him being like, oh, the right stuff. Great movie. Great movie. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it came out right after he graduated from college. So, you know, it's a, it's the prime age for, for things to just, you know, kind of sink in for you, I guess. So, yeah, it, it's just a movie that I've been aware of for a long time and just haven't gotten to. And I think. My, as I mentioned earlier, my reappraisal of First Man, because what I didn't mention earlier is that the first time I saw First Man, I actually didn't enjoy that movie. I, mm. I, I went into it with a very different idea of what that movie would be, you know, classic baggage situation. And I, I just had the wrong read on it entirely. And when I revisited it a couple of years ago, that movie just blew my mind and has just continued to grow in my mind over the time, over the last few years. So, you know, that's fresh in my mind. I watched For All Mankind recently, the Apple Plus show. Um, that, that show I've, I've, I really enjoyed the first two seasons of, haven't watched the third, but, um, so, you know, it's just, it's just a movie that is, is tied to a lot of the stuff that I've been consuming and, and thinking about. And uh, I, I thought it would make for a good board edition because again, the three hour runtime does tend to scare you off when you're just browsing for like, oh, what am I going to watch tonight? You know, it's kind of mm-hmm. like one you want to plan out to watch for, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So you were kind of, you were in this sort of spaced out mentality of like, oh, I've been enjo- ingesting all this spacey shit. And you also had the seeds of like your dad really loving this movie and you had heard a lot about it. I think it's a great addition to the board. Uh, I'll just briefly say I had seen this when I was a kid, but I have like no memory of it. 
my dad is also super into this movie. And I think it goes to what you're saying about like men of that age, like or really anybody of that age, just it, it hit at a really good time. And there's a lot of warm feelings towards that movie from people of that age. Um, Even though it didn't do well at the box office at all. Yeah, I think somehow it did well enough to stick before the era of like VHS and stuff really took over. And it really did get a bit of a, of a foothold in the culture somehow, even though, as we'll talk about, it didn't do, it didn't do a great, uh, great job at the box office, like you said. But overall, Drew, what were your reactions to this movie seeing it for the first time? I think in some ways it was a similar experience to watching First Man, where I think I was expecting a slightly different movie than I got the first time I watched it. Um, I still really enjoyed it. I mean, I, it's a, it is a great movie. But the first time I watched it, I, I finished it and felt somewhat underwhelmed. Um, when I revisited it the, for a second time, I, I watched this on back-to-back days, and the second time I watched it, I found a lot more to enjoy. And I, and I was noticing the nuances of the script and what, it's, what it's, you know, it is actually on its mind. Um, I still am nowhere near Siskel and Ebert's level of being like, this is one of the best movies of the 80s. I don't, I don't, I don't see it that way. I think it's a really solid movie. Um, but it's not, it's not one that like, I'm, I'm going to be like, oh, this is in the pantheon of, of like the great movies I've seen. Um, but I still had a really, really great time with it. I mean, there's a ton to appreciate in this movie and we'll get into a lot of it, but what was your reaction revisiting it now? And what was your memory of your first viewing? The memory of my first viewing of this movie is like a complete black hole, which is really bizarre for me. So I, that was not an intended space pun, by the way, I swear <laughs> to God. Um, but normally when I saw a movie as a kid, like there's a scene in there kicking around. And I don't think I was like five years old when I saw this. I was probably eight or nine, maybe. So old enough to have a memory of at least a scene or a component. But I had nothing. I was like, shit, I remember seeing that movie because my dad is super into Chuck Yeager. And I mean, Chuck Yeager is an amazing person in general. I'm sure we'll talk about him. But so he was like, oh, we got to watch this movie. But I did not. I remember the experience. I couldn't remember a second of it. Again, very bizarre. So when I went and started the movie to watch it this week, I was like, oh, surely scenes will come up and I'll have that sort of, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I had none of that. I, di- I did not remember a fucking thing about it. Do you it, think you actually watched it? it? Do you think it's maybe one I of those know where I did. you... Oh, okay, okay. I know I watched it. Because there are it. those um, movies that's where true. you're like, I am positive I watched this. And then you watch it and you're like, oh, yeah. no, I have not seen any of this. Yeah, like sometimes you have a memory where maybe it's like, oh, my dad was talking about it and I walked through the living room when he was watching it once and I then therefore I thought I saw it you know but I don't think it was that I really think I watched the entire thing and after seeing it this week I have an incredibly complicated relationship with this movie and I'm having such a difficult time pinning down how I feel about it hmm. I am all over the place so I sit down and watch it for the first time this week anyway. I'm like, I guess officially my revisit. But again, the, the slate is practically clean. It might as well have been my first watch. And I'm like, I go through these 
ups and downs. I'm like, is this movie great? And then like 10 minutes later, I'm like, does this movie suck? And then like 10 minutes later, I'm like, oh, no, no, it's great. No, it's great. And then I'm like, well, that sucked. And I'm just like up and down with this movie. And I'm just like, I mean, the truth, I think like oftentimes is somewhere in between. I think when you said it's just like a solid movie, like I think that's probably when I simmer down and cool off and really think about it. That's probably where I would land too. But never have I thought that a movie is just solid, but then simultaneously had such peaks and valleys to it in terms of how I was responding to it. There are points in this movie where you're like, wait, this is out of a different movie. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it feels very... I don't know. They, they, watching it, like there, there are segments of it that you're like, this is completely disconnected from everything yeah. else that I thought this movie was trying to do. Yeah. And there's parts where I'm like, wait a minute, is this supposed to be exciting? Because this part of it is not exciting. And like, like I just, I can't, I just oh, cannot pin this movie down. You know, I like, think the points where it's exci- it's meant to be exciting worked for me. Um, I don't know if I had that reaction. What Were there specific scenes that you're thinking of with that? Um, I guess more like, when they're actually going into space and like launching into space for the first time and stuff, like I think a lot of the Chuck Yeager stuff is legit exciting. And like that really um, was truly like giving me like goosebumps and like adrenaline just watching that. And so I think that's super effective, but more with the Mercury seven stuff, when they're getting up into space, I'm like, uh, should I be on pins and needles right now? Cause I'm really not. Maybe the film isn't trying to do that. Um, But um, so there were, I mean, again, that's, that's to me, is really a part of this movie is it's it is a grab bag of hits and misses and sometimes it's like super super cool and great and really funny and then other times it it seems really cheesy and like it's overplaying its hand and it's falling on its face i will say this though in in defense of the movie it is very long it's three hours and 15 minutes but sneakily it doesn't really feel that long like I didn't, I didn't really feel like it was dragging, even though there were emotional moments I was really not responding to, or things seemed to be misfiring. In my opinion, I never really felt like I was getting, you know, dragged through the desert. Like it, it, it does move for 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 a movie over that distance. That that's definitely commendable. Uh, and then I did a speed rewatch the other day, and I started the movie, and I'm like, wait a minute, am I liking this a lot more? than I did I started getting sucked into it a little bit and that because it does have a very unique sort of rhythm to it I think that takes a little bit of getting used to it's so segmented yeah yeah I just I don't know and but still as I was zinging through it I was like no shit this still doesn't work that still doesn't work so it's one of the more it's one of the it's maybe the most torn I've been about any movie we've covered just internally where I'm a little all over the map, but there's a lot to me to be commended. There's plenty of stuff I'll sort of wag my finger at too, as we get to the specifics overall, if I was talking to like, if someone asked me about this movie, like on the street, it's like, Hey, should I check that out? I would say, yeah, check it out. It's definitely worth seeing. It's cool. See, I, I might be more reticent than you really? in that. Only because I think, like, if you're into space movies, if you're into, you know, airplane movies, if you love the original Top Gun, like, stuff like that, like, yeah, give this movie a watch for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're not interested in that stuff, if you're not interested in the historical context, 
I don't know that you're going to get much out of this other than a few scenes that really, you know, will stick yeah. out. No, um, I think you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I think you're right. Maybe that would be more It's a specific watch. I'd have to know if someone was into this sort of stuff. But um, but yeah, the point I'm trying to get across, and I'm not I'm not doing a great job. It's just like I don't hate it. I, I'm also not over the moon of, of, about it. And it's just like it's a very sort of neutral. But again, the peaks and valleys were just really severe for a movie. I ended up at the end of the day was just like, yeah, pretty good. And I'm like, wait a minute. Fifteen minutes ago, I thought this was like terrible. And then 10 minutes before that, I thought it was amazing. So it's, it's just really bizarre. It's a really unique one in that way. Well, I kind of want to talk about this movie from a writing perspective first, because I think part of the issue with this movie, and some might say it's not an issue at all, but the thing that that I got hung up on is that this movie feels like two movies in one, and it doesn't it doesn't feel like it picks a lane, you know. Um, and what I what I mean by that is. This movie starts out with Chuck Yeager as the central character. And then it completely ditches him for huge swaths of the movie. Which, from a structural standpoint, to me, just feels completely incongruous. Like, he has nothing to do with the Mercury 7 program. At all. And that is what this movie is essentially supposed to be about. I understand that the movie is definitely like trying to dig into the psychology of test pilots and like the cowboy mentality and kind of a dying breed, you know, of, of the American hero. Like, I get that. But at the same time, I don't think you need that Chuck Yeager stuff to make that point. So for me, I either want to watch the Chuck Yeager story or I want to watch the Mercury 7 story. And, and when you're waffling between those two, it just throws off the experience to me and it makes it feel so just like it like like it doesn't hold together yeah like a little disjointed kind of yeah and and look that's not to say that either segment is better or worse necessarily i might prefer the jaeger stuff personally just because i think i've got a hard on for top gun but yeah. like the like for me it's just like if you cut all of that out the movie almost loses nothing, you know, just from from a structural standpoint. It loses something in that those scenes are really like electric. I had but. such a similar reaction to what you just described. And I was actually going to ask you that. So, I mean, I think it, it probably is fairly common experience with people watching this movie. But I was going to ask you, like, do we need the Chuck Yeager stuff? Like, if we were to just cut all of the Chuck Yeager stuff out, and I think I agree with you if I was forced to choose which part of the story is more interesting i'd probably go with chuck yeager and maybe for the same reason as you kind of like top guns in my mind um but the movie does seem to me once it gets going to be more focused on the space program and that sort of thing so i was wondering the same thing i was like what if we just trimmed the chuck yeager part out and we just had an hour and 45 minute movie or a two hour movie about the space program in the early days of the space program just is this movie better or worse and I don't know my personal feeling about the answer to that. Like, I don't know what my answer is because there's part of me that also thinks as you're explaining, like it's kind of two movies in one. It's like, well, that's kind of cool in a way. And I do kind of think it's an, an ambitious attempt to really fully tackle the novel that it's based off of. And like, you know, so many times 
a movie based on a novel and the novel might be like 800 pages. They're trying to shave that thing down to a two hour movie. A lot of the author's intentions can get kind of mangled in that process. And it can be, it can be particularly like brutal for those authors sometimes. Um, so by taking Tom Wolfe's book and like really trying to do it justice, I do think that's commendable. And there is a part of me that does kind of like the twofer part of this movie. And I do kind of like one thing I do think the Chuck Yeager part brings to the story is the person who was who kind of missed the boat a little, but was also the pioneer who really broke through in the beginning, but had this sort of silly stipulation of only college graduates kind of kept him out. But he also had sort of uh, I don't need that shit sort of attitude about it and then probably grew to regret it a little bit even though he made history on his own and on his, on his own terms and in his, in his own way so i do think it adds something to the movie and an interesting dynamic of this man who kind of missed out on potentially achieving more than he already had which was significant but i also agree with your kind of central point and echo it that's like do we need it would this have been cooler as like two companion piece movies that were maybe like released separately and we're like hey this we're, we're doing all of tom wolf's right stuff book but we're breaking it up into two movies and we're going to focus on blah 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 but then at the same time does it hurt that it's a two for one so i keep more like along my theme with this movie i just go back and forth with everything about it you know well the the movie is really about as humanity moves into the future parts of it get phased out and this point in in American or in this point in world history, we were moving from you know the age of the cowboy and the you know the lonesome you know hero into this age of you know needing to work as a team and like like collaborative uh, you know uh, I don't know I, I, the mm-hmm. movie no, the I movie do, is dealing with point. when you get to the Mercury Seven segments you know after the the press conference introducing the seven astronauts you know into the stuff where they're like no we got to work as a team and you know we're in this together the contrast that they're they're drawing there with those astronauts is the contrast between you know the flyboy you know uh like scott glenn character uh, as as alan shepard versus the boy scout of john glenn right Mm mm-hmm and it's kind of like it, it's asking, you know, what are the values of both of those and where do we find synergy and, where, and how do those two come together and, and move forward together? But I think by having the Jaeger character there, you basically undercut all the power of those cowboy characters in the Mercury 7 astronauts mm. because he's that same thing. So, you, you know, you either, I think, I think it's just kind of, like muddling the whole point of the movie by having him there. Mm. And I think you could have the Mercury seven characters as like side characters in the Chuck Yeager story, or you can have Chuck Yeager as a side character in the Mercury seven story, but by giving them not equal screen time, but by giving like a lot of screen time to Yeager, you essentially are establishing him as another central figure of the story. And I think it just pulls the power away from the split that happens within Mercury 7. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, it does. And I, I'm not sure I, I completely agree in terms of my reaction to, to, the, to the film and stuff, but and, and this element of it you're talking about. 
but I completely see where you're coming from. And to me, the, the, the Chuck Yeager in this film kind of becomes a bit of a specter and a bit of like a, um, like the, one of the giants that they're standing on the shoulders of, but someone who didn't get the opportunity to go along with them, but was a key component in making what they go on to do possible by breaking the sound barrier and all that stuff. But it is strange to spend so much time with a giant whose shoulders are being stood on. Like, like movies don't normally do that. And it is a little jarring, I think to be like, wait a minute, whose movie is this? Are we talking about Chuck Yeager and him missing the boat? Are we talking about the Mercury team kind of surpassing Chuck Yeager? I guess it's, it's trying to have its cake and eat it too. And as we're talking about it, it's making me uh, admire it a little bit more. But I do think that that is very abnormal and strange to do that. To have a movie with such a split focus is is it risks being discombobulated. And I think at times it does come across that way. And it's just like you want to sit the movie down on a couch, touch it on the knee and be like, what are you trying to do here? Like, just tell me what story you want to tell me, because you're telling me two at the same time and and then maybe the movie's like yeah but that's what i want to do it's like okay (laughs) cocaine was at its height in the 80s and uh, it seemed this movie has a little bit of cocaine energy in that it it doesn't feel focused in that way yeah yeah (laughs) but i felt pretty vindicated in my opinion of the structure of this when i read that the original screenplay for this movie was written by uh, one of the legends of hollywood screenwriting william goldman and he adapted the book and excised all of the, the Jaeger stuff, basically, and focused entirely on the Mercury 7. Um, Kaufman, Philip Kaufman, when he got brought onto the project, he made the choice to rewrite the script and, and bring Jaeger back into it. Um, he, his, his logic, his quote was, if you're tracing how the future began, the future in space travel, it really began with Jaeger and the world of the test pilots. The astronauts descended from them, which I don't disagree with. I just think that the amount of screen time you're giving to it starts to pull away from that. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I think William Goldman, I think, had the right of it, you know? Yeah. yeah well, it's cool. Just like you're saying, it sounds like this is a discussion that the powers that be involved in creating this movie were having. They were like, do we need the Jaeger stuff? And Philip Kaufman's opinion was, yeah, we do. And he was writer-director, and he he went for it. So I think, you, I think, and we're kind of, we're recreating that argument in a way. I think I'm starting to fall on the Philip Kaufman side, where I was like, I'm glad they did both, because the movie is, even though it is just disjointed, it is a richer portrayal of how these events came to pass. But I think it's totally valid and fair to be like, I think... Uh, cutting out the Jaeger stuff or putting that maybe in a separate film and making this leaner might have made a better film. Like I could see it going either way and it's cool to think that they were having the same conversation. Yeah. Well, I, I want to dig deeper into the segment and quality of this because it's not just those two segments, you know, kind yeah. of kind of happening. I mean, there's like, there's whole swaths of this movie that will just sit in a place for a while and you're just like, oh, we're spending this much time on this. Like the perfect example is the training stuff and the the tests that they're going through. Like we spend a solid 45 minutes just watching them do, 
you know, test after test, like stressing their bodies and, and you know, just making sure that they can, they can actually handle going to space. Um, you know, stuff like that. Um, it, you know, this movie is, is definitely loose. Like it's willing to just chill in a spot for a while and you, and doesn't really feel the need to explain why. Yeah. And, and it is so bizarre that within that looseness and you're right, we spend 45 minutes in this, in the training exercise and yes, it's entertaining. Like they, they get put through some goofy shit. Yeah, it's I, I really like the, the oxygen test bubble mm-hmm. ball that seems scene. Great. That's a great scene. And, all the other ones are kind of you kind of giggle at them a little bit because they're they're silly or whatever. And then and again, in that bag is a bunch of hits and misses. <laughs> like Again, my theme with this movie, like there are there are bits in the training part that really don't work. And there are bits that are like grand slams for me. Um, but all of that said and, and thinking about the looseness and everything else and the fact that the movie is three hours and 15 minutes, still somehow it doesn't feel bloated to me. I don't know yeah. how, even though I'm having mixed emotions. I think that's emotions. where we disagree the most because I do feel okay. like this movie is bloated as hell. You think so? Yeah. yeah. You think we could maybe could have got away with 10 minutes of training? Yeah. I think you can yeah. do a lot of that in a montage. Like they do like four separate montages in this movie. Yeah. It's very montage. 80s, but very montage heavy. For sure. Again, is there a correlation between cocaine and montages, do you think? Because Probably. The 80s was overstuffed with both it seems i want someone to do like an like a deep dive into the 80s and like the like try and parallel the the rise of cocaine and the rise of the montage (laughs) just see if they actually sync up dude i bet like scorsese and pta had so much fun doing like a coked out montage of cocaine in both boogie nights and, and goodfellas it's like oh man we're doing coked out energy of cocaine montage this is great (laughs) yeah um but i also want to talk about the movie is not just segmented in terms of like you know uh vignette kind of Mm -hmm. kind of structure it's segmented from a tone perspective perfectly said i what are your opinions on the way that this movie approaches kind of the comedic elements because this movie has so much disdain for the media and and mm-hmm. government bureaucrats and you know highfalutin scientists. Mm-hmm. How did you yeah. feel about the way that it portrays those kind of characters? The way it tackles comedy in general is again hit or miss for me. And more to your question, specifically how it handles the relationship with the media, the relationship with these cool pilots who are the ones on the line putting those snooty scientists in their place and like that sort of stuff those were among the comedic scenes that failed the most to me kind of like the the actually a scene i did find really funny was the the montage of exploding rockets but like that was, that great. was yeah that's hilarious but like that is kind of how i felt about a lot of those scenes that were really too hard trying for the funny and they did not work it's so much of a mixed bag for me Mm -hmm. um the the stuff with the media and the way that he i I don't know if you noticed this but they literally put the sound of locusts oh yeah dude i I wrote it down underneath Uh, every scene uh, involving the media it's like whenever the media comes the locusts descend and also what i think is really so like that's an example of I think what you're saying with the mixed bag. Love that's that. a great that's a great thing. That's a great touch. Really great touch. And also the fact that if you kind of squint your ears a little bit, 
the locust noise kind of sounds like a camera's whir. So there's like some sort of light justification for it being oh, there. Oh, yeah. No, I didn't pick up on it on first viewing. I had I read about it and I was like, oh, that makes complete sense. And then on second viewing, I, like I couldn't not notice it. I caught it at the, at the first viewing very tail end of like all the media stuff. I'm like, wait a minute. Did they just put locust sounds in there? Ha <laughs> ha, that's silly. But I had missed it. The, the, like, there were like six other media scenes at least before this moment. And then when I was doing my rewatch, I'm like, oh shit, it's in every media scene. Like, and I think it's a really, really smart idea. So that's an example of something that works super well. But then when you have like a scene where it's like the guys, have, the, the pilots have that thing up their ass. And they're trying to like scooch down the hallway to like stop from like oh see that did I, I thought that was pretty funny I I didn't mind see I that. didn't think that was funny you what I didn't find funny at all was everything involving Jeff Gold, Goldblum and Harry Shearer because that stuff felt to me like sketch comedy oh, does not fit in the God. same world as everything else going on and I was just like it it pulled me out of the experience so much that I was like mm. I. I I can't, I can't deal with this. What are Dude, you doing? That's beautiful. Here? Dude, I strong disagree from me. They, wow. I, I loved them in this movie. I thought they were so damn funny. And I loved the fact that they seemed so out of place and that they were just like from a different planet tonally, you know, which is, I think how you started this part of the conversation is like, how do we feel about the shifting of tones the but you're Gold putting Bloom them in the same scene Sheeran. as fucking Sam Shepard delivering this stoic, like, you know, drama, dramatic performance <laughs> as Chuck Yeager. Like, yeah. it doesn't fit. Those two pieces yeah. are completely different well, movies. Let's be, and they're in the same like, fucking bar. It, it's not like that when, like, Chuck Yeager, like, <laughs> delivers his speech. It's not like Goldblum, like, smacks Shearer with a fish, like, in the middle of the scene. Like, when they step into a serious <laughs> moment, they do, like, rein the jokes in. In Do that they? moment, I think so. Like when, like when Jaeger's drinking at the bar, and he's like telling them they should get a rabbit to go up, and all this stuff. Like they're not really cracking jokes aggressively in that scene. Yes, leading up to it, they are. When they're coming in from the car, they do that putting on the wrong jackets bit. It's just so and over the top for see, me. I like, I, I, dude, I loved it. I, I absolutely. It's the loved same it. way I felt about all the stuff with Lyndon Johnson, where I'm just like, I get that you hate this guy. Mm -hmm. But, like, do we need, like, s five separate scenes of Lyndon Johnson being a buffoon? Like, it doesn't, it, like, and, and don't get me wrong. Johnson was a buffoon in a lot of ways. But he was, he was also a skilled politician and, like, knew what he was doing. Like, he, he's, like, this movie portrays him as a goddamn idiot. I mean, I love Donald Moffat. You know, I'm familiar with him. I don't, thing. okay, let me, let me clarify real quick yeah, before yeah. you go on it. Because I... I hate that performance in this movie. Right. I don't hate that performance. Like, like if you put it in a completely different, if you put it in like a, a strange love esque satire, that performance works. You know, it's 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 funny. Like, I agree slightly with the Moffat performance in this film. I did find even in a different film, it was a little over the top. But there was times where it got to me and was really funny. Like when he's raging in the car of the fact that like 
John Glenn's wife like won't let him in the house, and he's just like, "What happened?" And like the car's like shaking. Like, yes, it's over the top and it's so buffoonish. But I caught myself laughing. I'm like, okay, so it does work on me sometimes. But for the most part, I think that that performance specifically was a little too buffoonish for my taste. But overall, I do kind of like that tone, that th those tonal switches. And I guess a question I would put to you, and this might be difficult to put into words. I mean, we've we've covered a lot of movies on this show that play in uh, in various tonal spaces. Like that's not uncommon for us to run into this to that thing. What do you think it is about this one that it didn't really work for you? Did you find it just too jarring? Or did this stuff, stuff seem too out of place? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad you brought up the scene of him kind of throwing the crybaby tantrum in the car about not being able to do his media, you know, appearance. <laughs> that scene is a perfect example of what bothered me because you're contrasting that over-the-top buffoon, you know, whiny performance with the scene in the movie that to me is the most emotionally affecting in terms of like mm. it's you know I, and and it's the moment that crystallized that I actually really love the portrayal of John Glenn in this movie mm -hmm. because it's not about just this this you know rah-rah boy scout American hero you know his moment of heroism isn't the moment later in the movie where he's like doing his orbit of the earth. Yes, yeah, his, his, his moment wife. of heroism is def is defending his wife and defending, you know, just decency, you know, and just mm -hmm. being like, no, 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 this is not right. Yeah. Like, if we're going to yeah. do this, we're going to do this the right way. Yeah. And and that's the moment of the team coming together completely and defending him. You know, the Cowboys coming to his defense like that. I, that's the moment that that resonated so strongly with me in this movie. And it, and it like. Thinking about it is like giving me chills. But then like you're you cross <laughs> you're cross cutting that scene with this fucking sketch comedy from SNL. And I'm like, yeah. fuck you, director. Yeah. Like, like give me this and let me let me love this. Don't yes. don't pull me out of this right in the moment. So you feel that like cutting from away from that to silly comedy kind of undercut the beauty of that moment we had in the previous scene. Yeah, I mean that's that's yeah. like the the lightest you could put it. Like I think yeah. it's actively pulling away from that scene and and making it worse and it pissed me off. Yeah. I want to circle back to that scene a little bit and let's I really want to dwell on that that phone call scene. Um definitely on the short list for my favorite scene in the film. I think actually no, no, it's definitely is my favorite scene in the movie. Mm -hmm. And I love what you said about like that is really his moment of heroism. It's not the orbit, it's not even the re-entry into the earth's atmosphere. No, cuz he's like, barely doing anything. He's basically yeah. just along for the ride at that point. He's humming and sitting. Yeah, but looking at at sparks in in space. But um but yeah, that scene I wrote down and I was just like god damn, that's just some good queso. Like it is very cheesy and it is like a very traditional type of movie scene. It's a total like Spielberg type of scene. Definitely. You know what I mean? And I say that with love. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was just so it's painting damn with broad strokes, but like it's obvious what it's doing, but it's yeah. effective. It is it is blatant manipulation of the viewer in the most like traditional cinematic sense, with like uh, you know, we have a soft spot for this for this 
beautiful woman who has a who has a stutter and is socially awkward and does not like being the focus of attention and we just have this like nonsense about the press and the importance of the press being pushed on ed harris and then him standing up to it and the music and every the way every component comes together is such a calibrated emotional attack and it's so damn effective i don't even care that i'm being that I'm like f- playing into the hands so openly. You know what I mean? Does that yeah. make sense? Like, no, hundred percent. Yeah, it's, it's manipulative like, in the best yeah. way. It's like a, it's like a scene out of like a Forrest Gump type of movie where it's like you know very kind of traditional scene. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know why I said Forrest Gump, but I think you know what I'm going for there. I hate that movie, it, but yeah, I know you do. I know you hate that movie, but you know what I mean. Like it's a very it's a very big, fat, beefy air quotes movie scene. And I absolutely loved it. I see. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I don't know if it's necessarily as big as you're saying, and at least from my perspective, I think I think they do a good job of not overplaying it. Um, but it, it it definitely is like manipulation. You know, I like in a good way, in my opinion. Um, the reason that scene works is because of the way that they build up the John Glenn character, and and it's it's masterful character work because you start with him you know, on the Ed Sullivan show and like just being this, you know, American hero. And you're, you're essentially watching John Glenn from the perspective of the test pilots at that point in the movie. And they're like, look at this fucking, you know, this jackhole. Hack. He's like, yeah. Yeah. It's just a media like, hack. He's just, he's all persona, no substance, you know. And, and yeah, he's, a, he's a media whore. He likes being on TV. And he's, then it's contrasted even further when you get to the, intro, like the press conference where they're introducing the Mercury mm-hmm. 7 and he kind of takes control of being like the, the spokesman of the team kind of. And, is, yeah, is and he all says about, all like, the, the right American stuff spirit and, and like, you know, we're, we're going to be the best because we're Americans and that's what we do. Like that kind of bullshit. And you're just, you're rolling your eyes at that character with the other characters. Yeah. And and then how about you get Dennis the, Quaid's face there, by the way, when he's oh, just staring he's nailing it. And, and I want to talk about Quaid up. later yeah, for sure. We'll get to him for sure. Yeah. 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 Um, but no, Quaid's really good in this movie. But um yeah, that that whole scene I loved. That was like I, I thought such a great scene um in terms of like, you know, it, it's like it's taking something that you know and adding a new layer to it in a really cool way. Um, and then, you know, you get the scene of, of Glenn kind of moralizing to the other characters about like cheating on their wives, which, you know, you know, obviously, like, I don't agree with cheating on your wife. Uh, but, you know, you can understand both sides of that argument to some extent. And you 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 understand why, like, like they're coming to blows in this way. Yeah. Like you, you get why Scott Glenn you know, who's playing Al Shepard, you know, kind of the Navy pilot guy, you understand why he's like, who the fuck are you to tell a, a grown-ass man what to do? Like, you don't Are they this. getting their job done? Great. Yeah. Who fucking I, cares? What they do off the clock is none of your goddamn business. And then you can also understand Ed Harris' point. It's like, hey, we're in the public eye now. Like, this whole thing could fall apart if people start fucking up, quote-unquote, off the clock. So it's a, it's a great argument in that way, just like you're saying where you could totally understand both sides of it. And, and then you, um, yeah, and then yeah. you build on that even further when you, like, the end of that scene is them reaching some amount of understanding where it's like, okay, fine, we both have different opinions on this, but where do we meet in the middle, right? And then you get the scene after that where they're arguing with the scientists about the capsule and, you know, they're they're working together as a team there and they're saying, no, 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 
we need to do what's right for, for all of us and we need to, def to support each other right now to get through this together. And then you get to that scene where, where, where Glenn you know, defends his wife that way. And it's just like, yeah. that is beautiful characterization. Yeah. And, and so well done. And so it's yeah. so offensive to me in that scene when you're just you're cutting to this fucking SNL sketch. Yeah, see, I didn't I didn't mind the cutaway. I get what you're saying. It's totally fair, but it didn't bother me because I didn't need to sit in that emotion for longer than I did. So I don't mind that it pivoted away because it was so effective when it was happening. Um, and again, it's like in terms of what I was saying about it being air quotes movie scene, like think of that guy being like but but you have to do this like you know i always think of like you've seen obviously the last samurai right of course do you remember the end of that movie where the emperor changes his mind and the sacrifice ends up being worth it and that british guy just goes like this is an outrage and like storms out like it's like that's pretty much what happens in this scene to a degree is like the press the guy who's forcing ed harris on like that side of the screen and then all the all the pilots, like again, like you're saying, they rally around Ed Harris, and they're just like, "Who do you think you're talking to, buddy? Who are you gonna get to fly these things?" And they just start like poking them and 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 making them kind of back off. And we just love seeing it. We I love seeing it. But again, it's a it's a it's a silly scene in a lot, a lot of ways, but it's so effective. And I get why you were so turned off by so leaving that beautiful feeling and slipping into the sort of bad slapstick comedy of a, someone throwing a tantrum in a car but for me we had enough time and that good emotion that I didn't mind departing it when we did uh, but but totally totally valid well that kind of that kind of leads me to talk a little bit about the portrayal of the wives in this movie which I think is a really key component to this and I'm, I'm I was pleasantly surprised to see a movie from this era um, thread this into the movie because I, I think I think a lesser movie would have not done any work for this at all. But I think the movie is very careful to show you the cost of, of this, um, this whole endeavor through the eyes of, of the, the wives of these characters. Um, you know, you could argue that, that it's, it's somewhat one note and, and you know, you, like I, I do think that there could be more there. But look, when this movie came out, like, I think it's in some way a small miracle that this movie cares about that at all. Um, and, you know, like I, I, I do really enjoy that the fact, not in, enjoy because it's sad, but like I like that the movie takes the time to show you the heartbreak that comes along with a lot of this work um, through them. Uh, I don't know. How do you feel yeah. about that? Yeah, I mean, I agree. Like these, they're, they're, they're relatively full-fledged, uh, fully fleshed out characters that are set in a time in history where women just did not have a lot of moves that they could make. So understandably so, the characters aren't like, I don't know, they're just, the, they're based on real people and the culture is just so different than what it is either in 83 or nowadays, you know what I mean? So in that way, these characters can look a little thin, but I think you're right. The movie at least deserves a hat tip for at least let's explore the cost um, that is being imposed on the women who support this. And let's at least take a look at, you know, that pressure of just having a partner who, who you're kind of depending on because you don't have a ton of ways to, 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 to run your own life and make your own money at the time. And they have a very 
high wire act job that is constantly risking life and death and you just have to deal with it you have to deal with every day there could be an explosion in the backyard that could be you know specifically specifically thinking about the test pilot section like you know whatever the the stats were they're they're like 60 some odd pilot deaths in like a 30 week run or no something it's, like it that. was so like it's a 25 percent like, chance basically that your yeah. husband was going to die at some point while doing yeah. this work so that's that's like, statistically and the movie calls that statistic mm-hmm. out like it's yeah. very specific um, yeah which i think is, is is really great and i do love that you know the shot of uh, pamela reed's character they do the searcher's shot oh, through the door where it God. goes out and you've got the kids playing with the explosion mm-hmm. in the background Dude, um, that such a is brilliant shot unbelievable shot and is probably going to be a contender for one of my favorites in the in our at the end of year yeah. wrap-up like i said it's derivative of of the searchers but it's doing something mm-hmm. unique with it which i really appreciate. and the way the kid is one of the daughters is playing with a plane almost to the point where it looks like it's crashing in front of the smoke they don't really comprehend what's happening and also let's give a little shout out to the movie in that scene too or right before it the explosion sounds like a sonic boom initially. So when we hear it, I'm thinking on, on first watch, like, oh, she's going to think this was a crash and she's going to walk outside and not see anything. It's like, oh, you'll get used to it, honey. It's the old sonic boom. But now they pulled it on me. I was the fool watching it. And I was like, oh, no, shit, no, that wasn't a sonic boom. That was the crash. And that shot is just so beautiful. And I didn't know about the searcher's connection. That's a movie I saw once. It was like, what's the big deal? So definitely one I got to revisit. But um, yeah, that that shot with that push in and the kids playing and well, the smoke, a, yeah, is, was 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 great. The searcher's shot is something that many many filmmakers over the years have parroted. I mean, you you could probably pull up a YouTube compilation of every one of them, Dude, but it's yeah. always the you know someone in a door frame, kind of in silhouette from behind, and the camera pulls forward to to let the door frame kind of open up the world that you're looking through, and it's. Um, yeah, it's the same shot from the end of The Searchers where John Wayne is kind of isolated in the doorframe and, and it's kind of asking what is the, um, you know, what is the value of this this cowboy a- anymore, you know, in this world. It's, it's obvious, like it makes sense why they're using it for this kind of movie. No, to get back to the women, though, I do, I do just want to mention, you know, the, the characters uh, specifically that really worked for me were the Pamela Reed character, Trudy Cooper, who is married mm-hmm. to Dennis Quaid's character. She um, was my she was my favorite female character in the sh- in the movie. I think a really really great performance. Really great, and also just like the way she wouldn't really put up with bullshit. I liked and and Quaid is like was like you know the cocky kind of most boyish and most immature of the group, and you I liked her sort of eye rolling nature about interacting with him and how she dealt with him. Just seemed really realistic to me and was a great performance and also just like her I like the way she looks in this movie you know she's just got a great uh, beautiful but realistic face she's got those she's, she's big awesome. blue eyes that yep. just you know you, you immediately emotionally connect with her um, yeah. really yeah. really great performance we've already mentioned Mary Jo Deschanel's character Annie Glenn who's married to John Glenn um, she's amazing Mary Jo Deschanel is the mother of Emily and Zoe Deschanel and the wife of Caleb Deschanel, who's the cinematographer of this movie. I had no idea until we started rolling and I looked up the actor's name and then I was like, oh shit, is this Zoe Deschanel's 
mom found out it is didn't know about the emily of the cinematography connection that's great and she and i could totally see it now when i think of zoe i'm like oh my god that 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 scene where we first get introduced to her stutter when it's was her and ed harris talking about how he's going to be going going soon and running on the beach a lot and his plans like it's like god she looks so much like zoe in that scene it's like wow genetics are wild man it's wild stuff yeah, she's great, too. I loved her, too. My favorite performance, actually, of The Wives was uh, Barbara Hershey, who plays Glennis, Ye- Glennis Yeager. Um, I, I just think she's amazing. And when you watch this movie, the Top Gun Maverick connections are just all over the mm-hmm. place. Like, she is 100% who Jennifer Connelly is modeling her performance on in that movie. Um, it's it's so yeah. obvious when you watch the, this. like the free spirited kind of unobtainable, uh, fiercely independent, uh, but also woman. loyal and and yeah. you know, stands by her man kind of thing. Like I don't know, like it's it's just it, it's it's a really I I think she just she doesn't have much to do in this movie, but for some reason she just has an energy that like when she's on screen I'm like I'm watching you, dude. I didn't make that connection to. Jennifer Conley and Top Gun Maverick, and you're so right. It's like now it seems so obvious to well, me. Well, I actually rewatched the beginning of Top Gun Maverick uh, right before we started recording because I wanted to to refresh myself on like just how much is this movie playing on the right stuff? And that entire opening, the whole scene of him going to Mach 10, is just a straight up reference to to Chuck Yeager. Like every every moment of it. Which is just, it's beautiful now, right? Now that we have the full context, and particularly, let's think of how Tom Cruise looks when he shows up at that diner. Mm -hmm. And we'll get to Chuck Yeager's kind of story in this double movie that we're talking about now, eventually. But uh, but yeah, it's like, god damn, how close was it? Because you've seen that scene more recently than I have, the Top Gun Maverick one. Is it like, is the look just like, spot on i mean look wise it's very different because i mean the you know the the top gun one is done at night and it's just it, it it doesn't it doesn't have the same exact look but it certainly is like there are multiple multiple references within it. right um which is cool and yeah i mean it's cool, it, it's the same same deal of like you know yeah. reaching some unreachable goal you know yeah well also just um circling back really quick to barbara hershey and yeah. you know glennis yeager's performance that scene where they're standing in the burnt-out remains of that oh, local that bar. That scene is so good. Dude, it's so good. And when she has that great line of something along the lines of, like, um, no, you're not afraid of me, but you ought to be. It's just, like, a great line. And, like, you you get... S- like you're saying, we don't get to spend a ton of time with her, but the time with, that we see them together, we get so much insight into their relationship. A lot of and it we wordlessly, get, too. Yeah, yeah. We get so much like understanding of why and how this works, like the fact that he is such a a a ballsy, a brave risk taker and just down to put his life on the line all the time. She's just really drawn to that, and that she's this sort of like free spirited, like really strong woman. He's really drawn to that, and you also see how many other people in this world are drawn to her and how she chooses him. Like there's that sort of rivalrous pilot that we don't spend a ton of time with, mm-hmm. with who breaks one of Chuck Yeager's records. Scott Crossfield. Yeah. Scott Crossfield. Played yeah. by Scott and, Wilson in the movie. And he, and like when she comes in to the bar, 
they exchange a pretty significant look to the point I'm like, is there a history there? Like, what's going on? They're really, the movie is taking its time to show us this glance between these two characters. But then there's that great scene where she and Jaeger start dancing and he, the, the, the pilot who's sitting down and had just previously broken the record, lifts his beer to Chuck Jaeger's back, like back, like cheersing him and Jaeger can't even see. And he just, without n- even making eye contact, just responds with that perfect tip of the glass, just kind of showing his sort of weird spider sense pilot instincts. It's such a fucking cool scene, man. But point being like, everyone is, is drawn to this woman. I mean, we all are watching it too, but she chooses him and we can yeah. see why she chooses him and we can see why he chooses her. Yeah, no, they 100% for Top Gun Maverick blended the Glennis Yeager character and the Kim Stanley character, Poncho Barnes, in this movie. Those two characters mm-hmm. got combined yeah, to create Jennifer Connelly. Totally, dude. Yeah. God, you're just blowing my mind right now. <laughs> I knew there was some, there was a decent amount of relation between these films, but the more we mine into it, I'm like, good God, she owns a bar and she talks a lot of shit and like she doesn't take any shit from the pilots and she has ones she likes and some ones she doesn't. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, so true right. story, Pancho Barnes was the fastest woman alive at this point. She had broken like all of Amelia Earhart's uh, records uh, before cool. she owned that bar. So, so she was a pilot. She's a real person, that's, yeah. That's really cool. That's yeah. really cool. Anyway, um, I think that kind of leads into just talking about the cast. You know, we've talked mm-hmm. about a lot of the women in this movie, but let's dig into the main uh, male characters in the movie. Specifically, let's start with Sam Shepard because he was nominated for an Oscar for this movie for playing Chuck Yeager, and it is a magnetic performance. How'd you feel about him in this movie? I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And another thing that had like decayed in my memories of like seeing it as a kid is I couldn't remember correctly who played Chuck Yeager. I had a picture in my mind of like, I, you know what was bizarre is I think the movie Space Cowboys, which is another mm. space movie that actually is a guilty pleasure of mine. I, I really enjoy that movie. Clint Eastwood directed. Yeah, and, uh, but um, I was blending him with one of the actors in that film. I can't remember who. Not Donald Sutherland, not Tommy Lee Jones. There's another pretty famous actor in that movie um, that I was, for some reason, I thought he played Chuck Yeager when he was younger. But it was James Garner? I think that's it, yeah. Because it's Eastwood, Tommy Lee Jones, Donald Sutherland, and James Garner, I think, are the main guys in yeah. the movie. Yeah, I think it was Garner. And for some reason, I thought, like, oh, did he play Chuck Yeager when he was younger? Doesn't matter. It's Sam Shepard, and I had forgotten it was Sam Shepard. And honestly, I don't know much about him outside of this film. He seems like a fascinating guy, and I would imagine you have some information about him. But in terms of the performance itself... The thing I like most about it, and you, de- you, you said magnetic, and I agree, but it's very small. It's very subtle. It's a, it's a very... Which is what I love about it. Cool, calm, collected, chill, confident guy. And you'd think... I would have a picture of someone being like a daredevil test pilot guy, being a little manic, a little wackier like in my mind i'm thinking like a michael keaton type or something i don't even know but it makes total sense it's nuts this this steady palm relaxed dude that nothing seems to bother him and he's just very zen and i i love the performance like i said it's like it's really mini it's really chill yeah but there's something intoxicating about it that i'm just like man dude i love this 
So how, how familiar are you with Sam Shepard? Do you know what his main credit is? I knew, I knew in like the very light puttering I did surrounding this movie as we were getting into it this week, I had read that he was a writer. And before this movie... He's more than just a writer. He's one of the great all-time American playwrights. Really? So yes. what did he? Uh, what had he written up until this point? I, I kind of. I, I'm glad I avoided the deets because I had a feeling you were going to come in with this good, this juicy information. Well, so the right stuff is only his sixth credit on IMDb as an actor. Mm-hmm. Even though he's, you know, he's not a young guy in this movie. He's probably in his late 30s, early 40s at, at a minimum. Um, but he was in. He's in Days of Heaven uh, is, is his, his second credit, which is another movie on the board right now. Yeah, well, I'll be, I'll be excited to keep an eye out for him. Yeah, and then he had three more credits between then and the right stuff. But, I mean, he was not known as an actor, really, at this point. So the big one for him is True West, which is one that just gets put on over and over and over again in New York. That's from 1980. Uh, he also wrote Buried Child, Fool for Love. Um, I'm just pulling these off of uh, Google right now. I don't really know many of these like because I'm, well, I'm not a theater guy. I don't, no, I don't you know and I stuff. are movie guys. We don't know a ton about theater. It's, it's wild to think about that he had these two things. And he got nominated for an Oscar for this. Yeah, it makes sense that he was nominated. And he, he's just, I wouldn't say like big dog, but it is in the running for one of the know. coolest performances we've seen this year. Like effortlessly cool. Yes, Jason Robards, you know, in All the President's Men, that's an effortlessly cool performance too. There's, we covered a lot of them, but there's something about this. And coolness is so essential. If you're going to portray Chuck Yeager, you got to be the coolest guy in the room. Like, and he is. He, he, he's a perfect fit for it. And. I don't think I've seen him in anything else outside of this, unless I'm forgetting something. Oh, you definitely have. My first exposure to Sam Shepard was in Black Hawk Down. He he plays the kind of general. Oh, is he like the colonel guy? Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's that was the first time I was familiar with him. Have you ever seen the film Mud? Mm-mm. It's a it's part of the reconnaissance, you know, a few years mm-hmm. ago. No, I remember he didn't, he was at least nominated for it, if not one. Um, you know, I don't, th- no, he was nominated for something else that year. Dallas Buyers Club. But this Club was one of the, yeah, yeah, Club. Dallas Buyers Club is what he won for. Um, but Mud was, I, I think, the same year and, and uh, you know, was basically just him coming, uh, getting recognized as a great actor. But it's written and, written and directed by Jeff Nichols. Um, starring McConaughey and Ty Sheridan. But Sam Shepard plays a character in that movie that really stands out. He's fantastic in that movie. Um, if you have, Yeah, if you haven't seen it, well worth a watch. What do you think of him always asking for the gum? The sort of like running gag? The love beans? that touch. That's you the kind of me. shit in those kind of movies that I'm like, fuck yes, I love yeah. that. And that last one, like, again, once again, I'm being so played. I'm being so manipulated, but I just don't give a fuck. When he's talking to his pilot buddy, mm-hmm. who's like in the hangar. Played by Levon Helm of the band, by the way. Oh, shit. I didn't know he was a, a musician or I didn't know anything about him, but he's got that, like, that, that his voice is booming because he's talking into the open hangar. He's got all that echo. He's like, ah, oh, I think, uh, that, that plane's got my name on it. And they have this like the gum thing, and it's just so fucking cheesy. 
but I just I have this massive smile on my face. That's what I like, that's what I come to it. these kind of movies for. Though, yeah, you know? like and we we touched on it a little when you were mentioning Maverick, but let's just spend a moment to really hit home that whole closing chapter of Jaeger in this movie. Um, we always say we don't want to recreate the film, but I'm really annoyed that they don't have Claire de Lune playing through his test pilot sequence. I really wish it carried over from what the astronauts were doing, sitting in this media yuppie fest with this fan dancer and cross-cutting, which the movie I does and is really cool agree. already. I was begging the yeah. movie to give just me that like, musical just cue. carry that over and have Claire de Lune playing as Chuck Yeager is going pedal to the metal and going for broke. And, th- and that last shot, I think it's the last shot of Chuck Yeager in this movie, when he's walking away from the wreckage and he's got th- half his face is almost like smoked out and scarred up and he's just kind of triumphant still. Badass and super cool on its own right, but imagine if Claire DeLune was playing then too. It would have just been like, I almost want to recut it. I almost want to find a way to download the movie and extend the song and like trim it. And just for my own interest like just see that with Claire de Lune playing underneath it because yeah. I think it would work like fucking gangbusters. I completely agree. I don't understand why you drop the music out in those those bits. Um, but also the Claire de Lune scene did you feel like maybe Steven Soderbergh completely is pulling from that for Ocean's Eleven the end of where, where they're like, maybe yeah like maybe, in front yeah, of the Bellagio fountains with Claire de Lune playing yeah. whenever I see a movie for either the first time or in this situation, I didn't really remember it. Whenever I see one use Claire de Lune, it instantly gets thrown into the conversation because that movie is, that song is so routinely used in film. Yeah. And it's such a beautiful song. I don't blame people. Well, but it's more specific than just the use of the song for me because Mm -hmm. it's doing this thing where it's, it's showing the various astronauts faces and their reaction to what they're watching and they're looking at each other and kind of taking, it's a sharing of accomplishment. Exactly. Shared feeling of like, Hey, we pulled it off. Yeah. I I, want to believe that Soderbergh is, is referencing that with, I bet it is. And even that shot of them all walking I think it's towards the fountain or when they're all walking together and the song really, really kicks off in Ocean's 13, uh, Ocean's 11. Um, that's also a little right stuffy. Just the sure. fact that the group is like walking in together. Um, but yeah, I didn't really, I thought of Ocean's 11 when the song was playing. You kind of have to. Uh, it's, because it's, of, yeah. I'm just comparing like, hey, what movie is using it? Well, that was the first time I heard Claire de Lune. And it yeah. was, it, it's still to this day, I think my favorite piece of classical music I've ever heard. Yeah, I think me too. I mean, I'm not and that's completely, I, that's probably the most like pedestrian oh, yeah. <laughs> like understanding of classical music that yeah. I could have. But at the same time, I can't help myself. It's just, yeah, it's, dude, so it's, inter- like it's, it's so, like, it just, it just gets me on a deep it's level. It's like to people who understand classical music, that's probably like someone answering you if you ask them, like, hey, what's your favorite movie? And they were like, Forrest Gump. And you're just like, ugh. Like I oh, bet that's 100%. Like, like a classical movie, like music fan. Like when we're like Claire de Lune is the best thing I've ever heard. They're probably like, oh, you idiots. You don't know anything. Not that we know everything about movies, obviously. But yeah, you know what I, I'm saying? I can't help what works <laughs> on me. I can't yeah, help Dude, it. it's, it's just, a, it's beautiful. But yeah, I had made the comparison to Ocean's Eleven in terms of who wore it best to use a fashion term. But um, I didn't make the connection. And I love what you're saying about like, they're they're sharing those glances. They're having this moment of reflection, of, of we did it. 
And yeah. that's that I think it must have been intentional on Soderbergh's part. As we're getting into the cast conversation here, I just want to say there are some great performances in this movie. We've touched on a few. We're going to dive into some more. But this is one of the worst cast lists I've ever seen in my life in terms of sheer confusion. Oh, my God. Here's what I'm talking about here. We have Ed Harris, who's playing John Glenn. We have Scott Glenn, who's playing Al Shepard. And we have Sam Shepard, who's playing Chuck Yeager. <laughs> and it's just like, what a rat's nest of fucking, like, what is going on? All these bolt, like last names crossing over. It makes it really hard to talk about intelligently when we're like, we're talking about John Glenn meaning the character that Ed Harris plays, but then we're talking about Scott Glenn, the actor who plays Al Shepard. We're talking about Shepard. We're talking the actor who plays... It's ridiculous. Well, and in addition to that, we've got Scott Paulin playing Deke Slayton and Charles Frank playing Scott Carpenter. Like, oh my God. It's just like... It's <laughs> it's like... I, it's like one of those things where I'm looking at this and I'm just like, are they fucking with us when they when they built this cast? Is this another cocaine choice of like, hey, let's just have, what if everyone shared a name? <laughs> like, it's just like so stupid. But, uh, anyway. I think across the board, though, what I can say about this movie is at least in in the case of the astronauts and their wives and and the you know Chuck Yeager. I think it's universally brilliantly casted. Oh, for I, sure. I'm, I'm kind we're, of we're just starting there. Around. No, no, yeah. no. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. to get back into the cast members, I wanted to, to go straight to John Glenn and talk about Ed Harris. Absolutely, dude. That's where I wanted to go next. Such a fan of Ed Harris over the years. He's a brilliant, brilliant actor. This is fairly early in his career as far as like being a star of movies. Um, How do you feel about the performance? Love the performance, but I wanted to ask you, um, putting you on the spot a little, you don't have to pick one, but what are one or two or a handful of your favorite Ed Harris roles. Like if you had to pick one, maybe go for that, but feel no pressure. I'll give you two. This actually, this movie is getting into the pantheon for me for, Ooh, him, uh, for sure, because I think, pantheon. I think what I, you know, I love Ed Harris in grumbly, you know, crotchety man, uh, mode for sure. Like you can't, you can't hate that. Like him in Westworld recently, you know, him in Top Gun Maverick, you know, like those kind of movies, I, I, I really love those performances because that's kind of his bread and butter. But what I love about this performance is it's the opposite of that. It's it's the Boy Scout. And I don't think I've ever seen that flavor of Ed Harris before. Yeah, um, spick and span. At least, at least not as clean as it is in this movie, you know? Um, so I, I, I really, really enjoy this performance. But if I'm going to talk about my favorite performances, I'll give you two. Christoph in The Truman Show. Brilliant. Just Oh, good answer. Yep. But, you know, as a companion piece to this movie, Apollo 13. He's just, he's amazing in that movie. Mm, What about you? What are your favorites? My answer for favorite is Glengarry Glenn Ross. I love him in Glengarry Glenn Ross. Uh, He handles that mammoth dialogue so fucking well. He's so funny. He's, it's just great. Great, great performance. And then one that I don't know if it holds up and it's not on my list or anything, but it just popped in my head right now. So I'm going to say it is what's the sniper movie I'm blanking on it. It's the World War Two enemy at the gates, enemy at the gates, enemy at the gates. Just it just it came up, man. I don't know why I just think of him as that fucking legendary German sniper. So miscast. But it just goes to show 
how much I just love the guy. Like, well, he's like, one hey, of those energy bad kind of guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, you want to see Ed Harris be a World War II German super sniper? And I'm sitting there saying yes. Like, that just shows how much I like the guy. Mm-hmm. One thing I thought was cool watching him in this, just kind of speaking broadly about it, is, like you said, this is really early in his career. He's so young. It's, it's cool seeing a lot of these actors that we've gotten to know better over the years when they're super young. But it's like I'm watching this and I'm like, good God, I guess he just always had that voice. I kind of assumed that he sort of like smoked or, or grew his way into that voice by like the 90s. But I'm like, oh, he's just he was just born with like one of the coolest voices in the world. And it's like he just had it, dude. He's so, such a great sounding voice. It's maybe my favorite thing about him. I think we brought this up recently, but have you seen The Abyss? I saw it once years ago, and it's fuzzy. So that is one I've been thinking about. If we ever put more on the board in that revisit category of like, I got to see this again, that's what I'm toying with. That's a great movie, and he's really great in it. Uh, I really like him in The Firm. Um, I really like him in... He's the in The w- Firm? Mm-hmm. I don't remember that. Okay. He, it's not a big part, but he's, he's okay. in there. Um, he also is in The Rock, which I, I, I love him in The Rock. Oh, he's great in The Rock. Yeah, that's one of my favorites is too. Yeah, I mean, he, he's just, he's really great. You know what, in, in terms of like a departure from the normal Ed Harris performance, did you watch The Lost Daughter a couple years ago or last year? I can't remember what year it came out. Mm-mm. Um, it's, a, it's a movie written and directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal, actually. Um, oh, cool. But it stars um, Olivia Coleman. She got an Oscar nomination for it. She's unreal in it she's so good it's 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 a really really great movie and he plays kind of a a side character in it that uh is has a very warm loving uh kind of presence in the movie and and it's a it's a nice departure for him yeah dude i love him um yeah let's go let's dive into him and this a little bit more you mentioned his sort of boy scouty nature and i totally agree we don't really see he's normally like kind of well sometimes anyway he's like the sleazy guy or the guy you're not sure if you can trust or whatever. I don't know if sleazy is necessarily yeah. the word. It's it's just very gruff and no nonsense is how I would Yeah, that's it. a better way to put it. Because when I thought when I said sleazy, I'm just like thinking to myself, well, now I'm just saying Glenn Gary, like specifically his character in that. You're right. Gruff and no nonsense is the better way to put it. Um, but yeah, him just being this kind of cockeyed optimist in this movie, just like absolutely like almost seems naive. But then we get that great scene that we talked about earlier where he stands up t- for his wife and we're like, oh, no, this guy's kind of the real deal. Like he's actually this sort of G.I. Joe character, but in real life, you know. And um, yeah, it's, it's it's a performance that could really get very eye rolly really quickly. And again, the movie is has some scenes where it's intentionally rolling its eyes at his sort of rah-rah mentality. But at the same time, like the performance never tips into absurdity. The, 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 his portrayal of it always seems genuine to me and does not seem it dialed up into the absurd. It's a really strong, strong role for him. It is. It is. Um, I, I, he knocks it out of the park. And w- what's really interesting is this movie came out in 1983. And at this point in time, John Glenn, the real John Glenn, was a senator Uh, from the state of Ohio. And he was in the middle of a presidential campaign. A lot of people at the time were making a big deal out of that this movie was in some ways like almost a campaign, you know, movie for him. 
um, which I can totally see, but I think removed from that timeline, I, I, I think you can appreciate the performance more because it doesn't feel like it's just, you know, boosting up this guy to, to be like, look at it, yeah. look at this American hero. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's, you know, just the context of that is interesting to me. It's, 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 it's ironically terrible timing. In a vacuum, if you looked at that story, you'd think, well, that's just great timing. But I think it was sort of a negative for both parties involved in some sort of bizarre way. And I saw in like the DVD special features, Ed Harris was just talking about how weird it was. And he was like, yeah, my, my face was on the cover of Newsweek. And again, this is pretty early in Ed Harris's career. He's not like a superstar. His face was on the cover of Newsweek. And the, the tagline or the headline was like, can a movie make a president? And the culture and society was binding those things so closely together. And again, unfortunate timing, because I would imagine it would turn potential voters off being like, that's so desperate. What, did he have a movie made about himself? And I bet it turned people going to the movie off. I know it for a fact it turned people going to the movie off because people, like you're saying, sort of viewed it as like this is some sort of like let's go let's go Glenn to the White House sort of bullshit movie and it was just complete coincidence and and uh well they tried to make this movie in like 1980 like it it wasn't like they were timing the release of this movie for the the thing you know it's classic example of like public's misunderstanding of Hollywood and how it works you know yeah thinking that like this movie was made in like two weeks just to to satisfy a campaign you know yeah, it's ridiculous but at the same time you know yeah. it makes total sense that people read yeah. it that way we got to just watch this movie on its own terms and then we find this fun little information out after the fact of like why it flopped at the box office and this was one of the reasons um, so yeah it's just interesting context but I love when we get that context after we view it and we're able to see it on its own. It doesn't, it doesn't like color your impression of the movie. And it, it works. It's a really cool performance. And I love too the way he displays, he, again, he has this sort of boy scoutish charm to him and this sort of extreme optimism. And when he sees the lights swirling around his space capsule, Ed Harris plays that sort of, being over awestruck and kind of overwhelmed he plays it so well i think it does a great job of bringing us in the audience who again have lived in drew and i's life always knowing about the possibility of space travel but we have to remember what it must have been like for these people who were the first americans into space and 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 for anyone who was early in the space it's like this is just a whole new frontier and there's this infinite world of like what is even out there what is it like out there what's going on and I think we as an audience get to tap into that energy with that sort of wonderment of the lights sequence. I think it's a really, really good job. And one of my favorite shots of the movie is Ed Harris seeing the, the moon rise and it's off of it's coming off of his helmet. And as he's looking out, just a beautiful, beautiful shot. But um, but yeah, Ed Harris is just the man. What about Scott Glenn? Have you seen any Scott Glenn performances before? How, how do you feel about him yeah. as an actor? I've seen a few. And I always get him confused with David Carradine. Always. <laughs> they do have a similar look. I can see that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I recently Very different actors, but yeah. Totally different. But I recently rewatched uh, Hunt for Red October. Yeah. It's a movie I, I love. Probably my movie. favorite submarine movie. 
and um, it's so great, dude. But um, literally, this is how deep the mis <laughs> the disassociation or the inaccuracy I have goes. Is like I was watching the opening credits of Hunt for Red October, and I was looking for David Carradine's name because I, like, I was like, I know he's in this, I know he's in this, and of course he's not. So that's the that's the movie I think of when I think of Scott Glenn, and when I when I think of him and his face and his sort of nasally deep voice and his very specific energy. It's very sharp, yeah, and he's got that sort of. Me is the nose. Silence of the Lambs. Because he's Jack Crawford in that, the the FBI chief guy that that um, kind of brings Jodie Foster into the the case. He's another one of those good, just good character actor types, you know. You just like, like um, seeing him. He kind of brings an yeah. interesting energy to to everything he's in. Yeah, he's never he's never bad. It's funny. This is my favorite performances of his that I've seen, though. I really enjoyed him in this movie. I think for me, I'm still going to go Hunt for Red October. But uh, loved him in this as well. And I do like that he brings sort of that kind of cocky energy to the movie and, and seems to be among the funniest of the group. And the person, as we mentioned earlier, who will stand up to Ed Harris and call him on his bullshit. He gets my favorite introduction in the movie on, on the aircraft carrier, you know, where he's just like, well, where do you want me? Kind of thing. Like, he's, yeah. you know, he sounds he's, dangerous. You sound dangerous. Yeah. I'm in. Yeah, I'm in. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, he's 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 just got a really, uh, you know, cool. He's he's kind of the face of the cowboy persona on the, the Mercury 17. I feel. Yeah. Like. Yeah. He's like the most sort of uh, mavericky, unpredictable, like Dennis Quaid, who I'm sure we'll talk about soon. But he's like um, he's the most like kind of cocky and cocksure but he doesn't have that sort of wild card energy no Dennis Quaid's more the the young kind of wild young punk the young wide-eyed you know kind of just look looking at everything with a big grin on his face you know kind of thing whereas Scott Glenn is more stoic but having just as much fun with it you know Mm -hmm. yep yep and and yeah he's been around the block yeah Dennis Quaid's like a puppy Exactly. Scott Glenn is like this, like you know, grizzled dog veteran. Dennis Quaid is chomping at the bit, and yeah. and Scott Glenn's got the bit in his mouth. Yeah, it's, yeah. Scott Glenn's like, slow down there, Hoss. You know, don't uh, <laughs> calm down, or you're shooting your pants. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. No, I, I really dug Scott Glenn in this movie. Yeah, but let's talk about Dennis Quaid. Sure, I, D. Quaid. He's so good in this movie. He's so much fun, yeah, dude. I, the whole time I'm watching this movie, I'm just thinking, dude, he has like a ventriloquist dummy smile just like plastered on his face. And I absolutely love it. It's like straight line across the top. Oh, yeah. Of his he, had, mouth. he has no lips. Yeah. It looks like it's it was his smile was drawn on his face and it's used to great effect throughout the movie. But particularly that scene we talked about, the press conference scene where Ed Harris is popping off about how great America is and how proud he is to be among these great men. And Quaid is just staring at him with that goofy smile shellacked on his face. And you can just see in his eyes, like, is this fucker serious? Is he really being this big of a ham in front of the media right now? And I just loved it. I, I, I really, um, it's probably my favorite Dennis Quaid performance. I should ask you, are, are there other I, iconic Quaid ludes? Like you really did? Like, 
That sounds like it puts you to sleep. I don't know if... Yeah. Uh, yeah. I meant like interlude, playing with the drug idea. I don't know what I was going for. It was lazy at any at any rate. But, but anyway, what are some other iconic quades for you? Well, so this movie was kind of his debut in a lot of ways. This came out the same year as Jaws 3D, which he also stars in, which is a terrible movie that I've seen and, and had fun with as a kid. But Dennis Quaid, the first things that come to mind for me are, you know, the movies that I watched as a kid. The the main one, because I had a sister and this movie got played constantly, is The Parent Trap. And you want to talk about a movie where a guy has literally no character to play with, but somehow is just using movie star charisma to, to like elevate the material. That is an example of that. Like <laughs> he is electric in every scene in that movie and he has nothing to do. Yeah. <laughs> just movie star quality, man. He's yeah. got that. He's got the effect. But I always loved him in that performance. I mean, you like another thing is like, if, if you're modeling who you want to grow into as like a 40-something man, that is one of the sexiest performances ever put to screen for that kind of thing. <laughs> the man just exudes like fuckable energy. I don't know what it is. It's, it's great. Um, but that's the first one that kind of comes to mind. I mentioned Jaws 3D. I saw that when I was young and, and had fun with it. You know, we've talked about in the past how much we both despise any given Sunday, but he's not bad in that movie. Oh, God, that movie does suck. And it's awful, you know, but he's pretty good in it. Dude, I have completely missed the boat on Dequaid. I'm, like, scrolling through his filmography, and I'm like, I've seen, like, none of these. I saw The Day After Tomorrow in high school. My favorite Quaid performance, actually, when I really think about it, is another movie from my childhood that I, I still to this day holds up is a great movie. And, and I will say The Parent Trap holds up too. Nancy Myers can do no wrong. Love that woman. But um, The Rookie. Have you seen The Rookie? I've never seen The Rookie. Oh, such a great just feel-good sports movie. You, if you ever just need like a rainy day movie to, to lift your spirits, that is a great movie. And he is phenomenal in it. See, I gotta put, I'll add it to my, my personal list. Also, uh, kind of cool that Chuck Yeager shows up for real in this movie. Uh, he has a camera. Oh, I don't know if film. I knew that. What, what scene is he in? In these, I guess this is no surprise, but in the Chuck Yeager segments, when they're in that bar, there's this kind of older guy who's like a bartender there who's often in the background or hanging out. I think he has a line or two of dialogue, but that's Chuck Yeager. He was an advisor on the film, and he was on set every day, and they would, you know, he played this sort of minor character. He wears like a cowboy hat and he's in the background of some scenes and sometimes he's in focus and sometimes he's not. But it's Chuck Yeager and that guy is the ultimate badass. The dude in World War II, by the way, he shot down a Messerschmitt 262, who for those who don't know a ton about planes, uh, the Messerschmitt 262 was the first jet engine plane ever created. And the Germans rolled out this 262 fighter at the end of the war that if the war had gone on enough, it really could have done a ton of damage because our propeller-based P-51 Mustangs just could not keep up with it. And Chuck Yeager shot down a 262 and a P-51 Mustang, which Jesus. is just pretty fucking crazy. That's insane. So, yeah, the guy is just an uh, absolute house, dude. An amazing pilot. And also passed away fairly recently. Um, and there's a ton of amazing stories about him. Like, like my dad is a big Chuck Yeager fan. And there's this story, I, I wanted to find it online, but I couldn't find it, but it's, it's insane. 
where in, I believe, the Korean War, he and his squadron were flying over open ocean, and he spotted an, uh, a tanker ship on fire, something about, like, 5 to 15 minutes. I can't remember the details. Before anyone else in the squadron could see it. Jesus. Of, like, flight time. Just one of those guys who is like, you you are inhuman. Yeah. With his eyesight, his reflexes, just born to do it. He was born to be a pilot. And just uh, obviously as this movie hits home, clearly the first person ever to break the sound barrier. Just a really cool, uh, really kind of a one of my favorite Americans. Let's just get real, dude. The guy's just a badass. And uh, I think he's portrayed in a really cool way in this movie, too. Someone asked him how he felt about Sam Shepard's portrayal of him. And he he had a longer quote kind of talking about, uh, you know, <laughs> well, I'll just I'll just read the bit that they, they quote on IMDb. They say, quote, Sam Shepard is not a real Sam Shepard is not a real flamboyant actor and I'm not a real flamboyant type individual. He played his role the way I fly airplanes. Just a very no nonsense <laughs> like way of putting it, and I love that. Just, I mean, I am a sucker for for uh, blue collar genius. Um, I just find it so much more interesting and folksy and wisdom. Some, yeah, yeah, and, and I hate to sound patronizing when I say that, but I, I truly respect it more than I do say like um, super deep intellectual book smarts. And I'm not trashing that; that's really important to life as well. But I, there's something that I actually really admire about. Uh, deep street smarts and like no nonsense intelligence I find fascinating and and like you said folksy wisdom and he just kind of personifies that sort of shit really well in this movie throughout the conversation we've been sprinkling in little like this was a great shot that was a great shot but I do think it would serve us well to really hit home like the cinematography angle in this film and how it really is gorgeously gorgeously shot no it's it's a beautiful movie it's shot by caleb deschanel who we mentioned before is uh emily and and zoe deschanel's father um he's he's just a really really talented cinematographer well in the pre-show chat you mentioned how you saw this on blu-ray we mentioned it's available on blu-ray for like 10 bucks super cheap videodrome had it on dvd so i watched it in dvd resolution and even then, I was blown away by the gorgeousness of the shots. But I am a little jealous that you saw it in, in Blu-ray. And I wonder how that experience was. And if, if yeah, I'm, I'm sure it was great. No, it's it, it's gorgeous. Uh, anything involving, you know, the desert and the sun and, and silhouette, it, it's just it's fantastic. Um, there's, some, there's a shot in the movie of uh, one of the funerals for the test pilots. And... The planes that fly overhead and and man that shot is just outstanding it's one of the most gorgeously composed and and uh lit shots i've, I've ever seen i mean it's natural lighting but um yeah but really think really of how beautiful long, think of how long they had to wait around because that that shot slapped me in the face as well you know i'm start. it's early early on in the movie we're talking like less than five minutes in the first pilot goes down and we get this unbelievably the, the perfect amount of clouds and color in the sky for this flyover at sunset evening magic hour and it just like it, again it slapped me in the face and says like no this is a real movie there's there's parts of this movie that are works of art pieces of art and that frame is one of them 
uh, just really, really stunningly gorgeous. Yeah. So, I mean, looking through his uh, filmography and, and all of his credits, he has a weirdly small amount of credits. He's he's not like a prolific cinematographer, but um, when he does show up, it, it's really great stuff. Um, the ones that stick out to me are The Natural is a just gorgeous, gorgeous movie. Um, he shot that the year after this came out. Fly Away Home is a movie that I really enjoyed when I was a kid. That's a gorgeous movie as well. Um, is that the, Jeff Daniels? Yeah, like, yeah, Jeff Daniels like and Anna, Anna Paquin. Yeah, Dude, um, I they actually that movie, shot yeah. that movie near where I grew up. Uh, weirdly enough, but um, yeah, really beautiful movie. The Patriot is a bad movie that ha- looks so much better than it has any right to. Go You're back the Gibson? the Mel Gibson Roland Emmerich movie. Uh, yeah. movie. It's not a good movie. No, uh, it's but it's great. Dude. You want to talk it. about bullshit rah rah patriotism? That is oh, ultimate have, of that. It literally that takes going, place man. on a South Carolina plantation, and they do not mention slavery once. Like no, <laughs> I, they're free. The people who work there are free. The movie has a point to say that. Oh uh, yeah, which is <laughs> utter fucking nonsense. But yeah, I mean, if you're looking for historical accuracy, you got to go somewhere else. <laughs> but that for, movie um, is beautiful to look at. Yeah, do don't you love how the same actor? played General Cornwallis and also Benjamin Franklin in the same career. <laughs> Tom That's Wilkinson, one of the greats. Yeah, dude. I love that guy. Um, and I love his General Cornwallis because the I can't think of the actor's name who plays the despicable Englishman. In Jason Isaacs. Jason Isaacs is like, oh, my God, this is just way over the top. Cartoony. Is is crazy and it's it's so goofy. It makes me laugh. That's a movie I just enjoy parts of it sincerely, but other parts like oh my god, that's just so stupid. And I just love it. The right stuff. Gorgeous, gorgeous movie. Um, I'm sure we could just list off shot after shot that we really enjoyed. It's one of the biggest um, technical strengths of the movie. I mean, we've talked a lot about the acting. We've hit a lot of like the story structure and the quirkiness of that sort of the way everything is composed. Um, I've had some issues, like I mentioned, with some of the editing, but. You just got to shut your mouth when it comes to the cinematography in this movie because it is there is not a bad looking shot in the movie. I've, I've talked about a lot of ups and downs and my reaction to the movie, but um, at no point was I like, well, that's an ugly shot. Like everything looks good. I wanted to mention real quick. How do you feel about the score? Generally speaking. Because it's a it's a Bill Conti score, and he's a really talented guy, and you know he's he wrote the Rocky theme song. Like the guy knows what he's doing. Um, I found it a little bit kind of hit or miss, anonymous. I found it up or down. I found it like there was one where like the score kicks in right after Chuck Yeager breaks through the sound barrier, and I just literally wrote in my notes, "This is awful." The score in this point, I, I, I don't remember how it sounded or anything, but I just remember being like, this is so bad. But then there were other scenes where it was like, you know, traditional, like, burr, 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 like triumphant horns, and it was fine, and I liked it. So Bill Conti around this time had an unfortunate tendency to lean into synthesizers, and some of the synth stuff works. Like, there's, there's a bit... Um, towards the end when, when I think it's the scene where they find Chuck Yeager after he crashes, um, where the synth stuff actually kind of works for me. Um, but I always prefer when he's working with an orchestra and, uh, you know, that, I mean, the Rocky score is the perfect example. Like that's a brilliant, brilliant score. Yeah. Um, yeah. And funny enough, Bill, Con- going back to another kind of 
thread of dartboard movie night. Uh, Bill Conti was brought in to do the score for uh, For Your Eyes Only, which is a James Bond movie from 1981, and is reviled as maybe the, the <laughs> second or third worst score in Bond history. Really? And it's oh, because shit. he leans into How do you the, feel about the, it? the, the oh, synthy synth stuff. Yeah, the synth I, I got hate him. It. It's awful. The synth took him down. What are you going to do? Man, I, I'm <laughs> going to send you a scene. There's a ski chase scene. And the score that he puts to that, you're just like, what are you doing, dude? <laughs> yeah, send it, send it it's away. It's baffling. Um, but, you know, funny story from the making of this movie. Originally, another Bond connection, John Barry, um, who's a the classic Bond composer, was originally brought in to do the score for this movie. And I want to, I just want to read this bit because I found it really funny. Here's the, the IMDb trivia bit. Original composer John Barry left the film because he found it impossible to understand what Philip Kaufman wanted from the score, citing a meeting where Kaufman described his ideal score as, quote, sounding like you're walking in the desert and you see a cactus and you put your foot on it, but it just starts growing up through your foot, end quote. What does that mean? You know, if I, I think if I had a musical mind, and I was a composer. I think I would like a note like that. I have to say, as opposed to someone being like, it should be brash and frightening or like, I don't know, like just adjectives. It's kind of fun. I like the idea of trying to be like, no, g give me an, um, an emotional, crazy image and let me think of what that means. I, I get now, like, I don't know music, so I don't I wouldn't know where to take that. But I think it's a cool way to try to put emotion into words I, I like it i think it's good direction all right fair enough i for me i was just like i what could you possibly mean from a musical standpoint with that yeah i, I just fair. don't know but Dude, that's fair that's yeah. fair maybe i'm just like if i was on the other end of it truly receiving it maybe like wait a minute no i take that back fuck off like heartily <laughs> yeah yeah um but yeah i just wanted to touch on the music because i feel like movies like this you want a big epic score with it and i think at times this score can kind of get there but it's not always there for me yeah a lot of times it vanishes into the background sometimes it rears its head in a good way sometimes in a shit way so i'm kind of with you it's just up or down here to miss give me some, give me your final notes on the right stuff we're gonna go rapid fire through these drew you ready the common theme of my reaction to this movie has been ups and downs i want to hit as throughout these notes there's going to be some downs I've been kind of light on this movie to a degree, but there are some really shitty decisions, I think, that are made from a creative standpoint. The voiceover at the end and the voiceover at the beginning is terrible. Like yeah, to the point work. where I actually thought it was like a spoof start. Like I thought it was going to be almost like a Citizen Kane because we get this black and white footage. And we get this voiceover. Where it's like, like a newsreel kind of thing. E exactly. Where it's like, these are the people who have the right stuff. And they're going to change the uh, space industry. And then I half expected like someone to flip it off and be like, okay, so that's what we're going to do for the PR standpoint. And then the movie just starts. And I'm like, oh, shit, that was sincere? Like, that was fucking horseshit. That is so bad. Yeah, I think the movie would have done better with what Top Gun does uh, three years after this, where they just do the, you know, the the text on the screen, and then they they go, but so and so call it Top Gun, 
you know yeah, it's like yeah, it, like yeah, it's yeah. so over the top and hammy but that works yeah, because there's not yeah. a, a bad narration with it but bad narration and there's there's shitty narration at the end of this film too like well funny like, enough the the narration is done by Levon Helm who I mentioned before the guy who plays uh John Ridley the the uh, friend of of Jaeger uh, mm-hmm. in the, in the movie yeah i then I too think his voice was off. He, I was like, "Who is this guy? This well, he's isn't not a character." An actor. It's a weird choice of who you would have do that. It's also a weird like when I heard it, I was like, "Wait a minute, is this one of the original astronauts or something? Is this Chuck Yeager?" Like, I would have, I would have cut it a little more slack if it was that. But I'm like, "Wait a minute, it's the guy from the band who's a background character in this film, handing out Beamons." Terrible choice. Anyway, let's give a quick shout out to the miniature work in this movie. So all Interesting. of the, so you liked mm-hmm. the miniature work. Mostly yes, I think because um, I I it never worked for me. That that's one of the parts of the movie that I feel like does not hold up at all and shows its age. Uh, for me, I felt uh, almost completely different, pretty much the opposite of you. I like I didn't even know some of it was miniature work. They really had me oh, fooled. Weird. To me, it was like so was obvious like, that I was like it pulled me out of the movie. No, yeah, I, I I found it really effective. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. Maybe it looks worse on the Blu-ray. Maybe like the DVD covered yeah, it up. Yeah, that's it- possible for sure. Um, no, but what, I think what bothered me was that they were doing, they, like they had their cake and they ate it too in that they had the model work and then they also had the actual plane foot photography, which the the photography of the planes in, in motion is tremendous. Like it looks so good. Um, and I just wanted more of that. That's a little interesting point of difference there. When the initial cut of this movie came in, it was five hours long. Good <laughs> so, God. What so else they, is there? They had to put in, who the fuck knows, man. But they must have had to put in some serious work to trim that bitch down to 315, dude, which is still super long. And I mean, Drew and I seem a little split on this, but definitely a reasonable argument could be made that it should be shorter. Um, it makes total sense that when they remade this recently, they made it a miniseries because the, mm-hmm. this movie today would absolutely be a miniseries if it was being yeah. made for the first time. For sure. And you know how um, Drew and I have movie podcast crushes that we there's just other shows that we really like. I'm a big fan of the rewatchables. They have a reoccurring question at the end of each episode of like, would this work as a Netflix miniseries like one off? And it seems like that's what they did. Like they listened to the, a podcast and we're like, oh, you know what would make a good candidate for, for a series would be the right stuff, but spread it out over all these movies. Like well, whatever. it would make the, the kind of segmented <laughs> nature of it feel yeah. less jarring, I feel like. It, it could work, but uh, it seems like that right stuff series was kind of panned. I mean, well, who knows what cr- credits But it's, it's completely shit, but. unnecessary. Like, I'm, I'm only saying that as like a, if this was being made for the first time today, not as a remake. We talk a lot on this show about actors who show up really briefly and just really come through. And I wanted to give a shout out to the movie opens and there is the first crash and the woman is jarred awake and she sees the military person approach her door to give her the news that she knows impending. And she breaks down crying. I don't think she shows up again in the movie and she is great in that scene. It's a heartbreaking scene it's really emotional. It also introduces you to the grim, the grim reaper yeah. of the movie, which is yeah. that, that preacher guy. The preacher guy with the with the bowler hat or whatever you'd call that type of hat, who just 
just this wordlessly and silently lurking and shifting in the background. That seems that. like a coked out idea that Philip Kaufman had, who was yeah, like, I'm sure. going to put the, the Grim yeah. Reaper himself in this movie yeah. to show just how devastating this whole yeah. scenario is. Yeah, they, they, they've got the right stuff. They beat death. <laughs> they beat death. Wanted to give another shout out to just a really good title. This movie's got, and the book, the book that it's based on, just a good name. You know, titles, who knows the value of a good title, but it's it's a strong one. And you were talking about your reaction as, as a kid seeing the jacket, the, the VHS jacket blockbuster. You got that image you mentioned of, you know, the space guys kind of walking towards the photographic camera. Let's not forget the power of right above that is the right stuff. It's like, that's just... That's just a dope combo, man. No, no. I, I mean, and, and that definitely stood out to me, too, as a kid. Was That's a good title for a movie. Yeah, it's just a good name. But that's it for bullet point notes for me, man. Well, I think that'll do it for our episode on the right stuff. I think it's time we put something on the board. What do you say? Hell yeah, dude. It's your week, right? It we is. We mentioned that earlier, I guess. But yeah, what do you, do you have contenders or you got one with confidence and gusto? I've got one with confidence and with gusto. Get it up there. I want to do the oldest movie we've done on this movie so Whoa, cool. And it's a movie that I just was browsing around Letterboxd. Somebody that I follow reviewed this, you know, within the last few days. And I screenshotted it because I was just like, you know, that feels right. It's a movie that I think is going to be really interesting to see how it holds up. From 1931, it's M. Have you ever heard of M? I have never heard of it and as a fucking internal sort of american guy i don't know shit about german cinema can i give you, you just the plot overview from from yeah. letterbox because yeah. i think it's i think it sells you on the movie and it might sell people who are reticent to watch a movie from 1931 yeah yeah wait on me in this classic german thriller hans beckert a serial killer who preys on children becomes the focus of a massive berlin police manhunt Beckert's heinous crimes are so repellent and disruptive to city life that he is even targeted by others in the seedy underworld network. With both cops and criminals in pursuit, the murderer soon realizes that people are on his trail, sending him into a tense, panicked attempt to escape justice. Intriguing, dude. I mean, let's do it. We don't, I don't know. We've never done a German film in this show. I like the kind of premise of the oldest film we've ever covered and let's see if people will come along with us on this one i mean who knows when we'll hit it but i like the choice dude i think it'll be uh, an interesting watch and i don't know shit about what uh, beyond what you just said about it so going on at number three is m from 1931 let's do a board review now of the current board at number one we've got you can count on me number two akiru number three newly added m Number four, Rio Bravo. Number five, Operation Condor. Number six, Anomalisa. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, Pi. Number nine, Days of Heaven. Number 10, The Limey. Number 11, The Hateful Eight. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Number 14, The Karate Kid. Number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, Dirty Harry. Number 17, Titan. Number 18, Snatch. Number 19, Strange Days. And number 20, The Terminator. Love it, dude. Let's see what we get. Before you say anything, one thing that we completely failed to highlight is that you have tied my four in a row now. 
wait a minute, no, that can't be. Right stuff, right stuff was yours. I'm saying from 39, which was the big sleep, to 42, which is waking life. You had a four movie run. Oh, okay. So, so we still haven't broken. We have, we've pushed the envelope, the outside of the envelope, as they say, the right stuff. But uh, so, oh shit, we missed that. So I had a four in a row, but didn't didn't break through. No, you didn't didn't no. cross over. The right stuff broke your streak, but we now both share that streak. The dot has spoken. <laughs> Given the accent, I'm curious where we're going with this. Nine. We're going back to the OGs and knocking off our second to last OG on the board. Number nine is Days of Heaven. Days of Heaven came up in conversation today, it right? It sure did. Oh, that is the dart working in mysterious ways, dude. Days of Heaven, the second to last OG goes down your inkling was correct as well because i distinctly remember you saying you anticipated the straight story being the last one that we would knock off and it, I, and it I, is I knew it, I knew it would be and who knows when that'll happen man days of heaven at time of recording is free with ads on pluto tv if you have a library card you can actually get it on canopy as well and then it's pay to rent on a variety of platforms so you should be able to track it down this I is going to be your first Terrence Malick movie. Yeah, I've been I've been really wanting to get into this director, but I've been waiting for the board to kind of shift me there. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if after the, we watch this, if I really dig it, I might try to get another Malick up sometime soon. Um, but, but, you know, one thing at a time. I'm going in pretty fucking fresh about this movie. Is this one of those movies that has, like, different cuts? Is there one we should see versus the other? Or am I thinking of something different? No. Well, you're not far off in that the, the editing of this movie is a story in itself that we can, we can get into on the episode. But, um, this is a movie that was shot many years before it came out because the editing process took so long. Gotcha. Um, but no, I don't believe that there are multiple cuts of it. I think it's just the one, uh, it stars Richard Gere, Brooke Adams, and another episode mentioned Sam Shepard. Yeah, next week we'll have to check in and see how many we've had back-to-back actors, how many times we've had that. But like, that might be kind of a rarity. But, um, I yeah, I'm excited to check it out, dude. I think it's going to be fun. Looking forward to it. So next week's going to be Days of Heaven. That's going to do it this week for our episode on The Right Stuff. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Please remember to rate, review, and give us a follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. If you want to keep in touch or give us a recommendation, drop us a line at dartboardmovienight at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at dartboardmovienight. Artwork for the show is created by Veronica Roman, and all of our music is by Eric Williams. Play us out, Eric. Sorry, Mark. Later.